Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2014 AWP conference in Seattle. The recording features Eric Larson and David Gooderson. You will now hear AWP thank the event sponsors and Peter Mountford provide introductions. AWP would like to give a special thanks to um, Seattle Arts and Lectures and Penn Faulkner for their generosity in sponsoring this afternoon's event. And here to introduce today's re-speakers is Peter Montfort. Thank you all for being here. Um, Just a word about the format. So I'm gonna introduce David Gooderson and Eric Larson, and they're each gonna come up and read for a little bit. And then after they finished reading, we're gonna have a, a sort of a conversation, a Q&A uh, that will last maybe half an hour, a little bit more. And the, the conversation where we were sort of looking at what ties them together, apart from the fact that they both live here. And uh, they, there's, a, there's a real interest for both authors, I think, in the role of research uh, and facts and the role between the relationship between research and facts and storytelling. Uh, and so I think that's gonna be sort of the thing that drives our conversation. And, uh, and then after that, there should be time, hopefully, for some questions from the audience. Uh, so get thinking. Yes, thank you. I'm gonna start uh, with in an introduction for David Gooderson, a novelist, short story writer, poet, journalist, and essayist, a native of Seattle. David Gooderson earned an MFA from the University of Washington. Afterward, he spent 12 years working as an English teacher by day and writing by night or morning or whenever. During those lean years, he began placing stories in literary journals. His debut collection of stories, The Country Ahead of Us, The Country Behind, was published in 1989. His second book, a work of nonfiction, Family Matters, Why Homeschooling Makes Sense, was released in 1992. Since then, He's written novels mostly, almost exclusively. In fact, he's written five novels, Snow Falling on Cedars, which won the Penn Faulkner Award in 1995 and was adapted as a film, East of the Mountains, Our Lady of the Forest, The Other, and Ed King, most recently. His essays and stories have appeared in magazines such as Harper's, Sports Illustrated, Esquire, and elsewhere. He has a new, his first, collection of poems Songs for a Summons, and he'll be reading from that collection of poems today. Um, Linda Beard said of the poems, like those of Robert Frost, David Gooderson's poems often find transcendence in the natural world, in particular the mountain ranges and island landscapes of the Pacific Northwest. Mr. Gooderson lives that way, I think, uh, on uh, Bainbridge Island, which is a beautiful place. If you're visiting town, you can take the ferry over. It's really nice. He has four kids, one of whom I once met. I think he's a brewer of beer. Um, He also went to high school, I believe, with uh, one of the members of Pearl Jam. Is that true? Same school. Same school. Yeah. There you go. Is that true? Yeah. Close enough. Yeah. Eric Larson was born and raised in New York. He got a graduate degree in journalism at Columbia University. He was a newspaper man for many years, uh, starting off in the Bucks County Courier Times. Uh, And then with a little bit of time, he became uh, a features writer for a newspaper called The Wall Street Journal and a magazine called Time, uh, which uh, I think he's still a contributing editor at Time. Uh, He's written for The New Yorker, Harper's, Atlantic, et cetera. And uh, he's also written a number of books, beginning in 1992 with The Naked Consumer, How Our Private Lives Become Public Commodities. He also wrote Lethal Passage, The Story of a Gun, and Isaac Storm, The Devil in the White City, which won the 2004 Edgar Award in the Best Fact Crime category and was a finalist for the National Book Award. In 2006, Larson published Thunderstruck, which intersperses the story of Holly Harvey Crippen with that of, whose name I cannot pronounce, (laughs) Marconi, uh, and the invention of the radio. His next book, his most recent book, In the Garden of the Beasts, came out in 2011 and concerns William Dodd, the first American ambassador to Nazi Germany, 
O Magazine called it the most important book of 2011, and Philip Kerr, writing for the Washington Post, wrote that it reads like an elegant thriller, utterly compelling, marvelous stuff, an excellent and entertaining book that deserves to be a bestseller and probably will be, and indeed it was. Uh, Mr. Larson has three daughters and lives here in this fine city and often wears, but not today, a crisp white shirt, but not today, no. No white shirts today. Um, so Mr. Guderson will come up and read some poems, uh, and after him, uh, we'll have Eric Larson. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, as Peter said, uh, I have a first book of, of poems that's from Lost Horse Press. And uh, I started writing poems, I think, seven years ago, which means I something I came to relatively late in life. And I was surprised uh, because I had never thought of myself as a poet. In fact, I told myself definitively that I was not a poet. Uh, and I, I'd created a sort of gap, uh, chasm on the other side of which lay poetry. Uh, I, that I really believed in that divide and I felt that I shouldn't cross it and couldn't cross it. So it was a surprise to me when poems arrived. Uh, although in retrospect, when I think about it, uh, <clears throat> Not really a surprise, because I loved poetry from the time I was a child. My father had some poems memorized and would read them to us sometimes at night. And I was moved by them. And um, I think that got me started uh, into being moved by poetry ever since. And as a high school English teacher, uh, I enjoyed teaching poetry more, more than anything else. And so I've always had this powerful attraction uh, to poetry, but not to writing it. And uh, so the writing of it is something relatively recent. And I've really enjoyed you know, doing something new. I've enjoyed being a beginner after five novels in a row, uh, tw over 20 years, you know, really immersed in just this one genre, to open a new door and walk through it and to attempt to do something I hadn't done before was really, uh, really refreshing. Uh, so I want to share a few of these uh, poem, poems with you from Songs for a Summons. And um, the first one, um, <clears throat> well, the first one is called Three Raccoons. And so you heard Peter mention that I live on Bainbridge, where we have a lot of them, uh, crossing the roads, sometimes in the middle of the day, looking, um, looking bewildered and befuddled, uh, sometimes in groups, more often at night, you know, blinded and looking both terrified and curious. So this poem is called Three Raccoons. One night, coming home in high beams, on their own, three kits at the start of fall, watchful, if blind. Two together, one behind. Low in the interstices, they do what they do, which is to say they live their lives. The lagger hurries. Am I death in a new guise? They crouch to guess, confront my rising eclipse of their sight. I'm proof there's more than meets the eye. I'm light, and on this treeless ribbon, dangerous entertainment, I'm dazzling. It's midnight, the silence of owls. I sleep wearing my animal vestments. These three now to the hilltop pond these three into the dark ravine, just beyond my sight. I, I want to share another uh, poem that emerges out of uh, being, being on the road at night, which is something I've always really enjoyed. I like the darkness and the solitude. Uh, and um, <clears throat> there's a kind of dream space that emerges for me sometimes when, when I'm doing this. Um, and this poem derives um, out of one of those experiences in the, in the dead of winter. <clears throat> it's called Winter Solstice. One headlights out. A dream of deer obscures the road. The sky's a canal. Between sleep and waking, out of fog, a horseman rides, disappearing at a glance. And maybe it's the worn yearling in the splayed and battered undergrowth the wet salal dashed, the slough of last year's bracken fern, now drowned brown carnage. 
and in the ditch where the emptied bag of beer cans shines, the ghosts of all my broken headlights appear in sepia, at which I dare not look on the hill toward home, if it is home. But could this be another life of mine, either not yet lived or not forgotten, available in blurred shards only on the darkest day of the year? The third, the third poem I'd like to share with you derives from a different source altogether. Uh, I spend a lot of time reading, I guess, what you would end up calling religious or spiritual material. I enjoy it. And, um, <clears throat> but often when I read this, I feel I'm in the presence of somebody who really takes a dim view of life. You know, they, uh, these, the, almost uh, the sense that you ought to turn away from life. And I just have a very, very difficult time doing that, as we all do. And I feel a deep sense of conflict and uh, a sense that this isn't for me. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, I was reading a, a, a myth or a fable or a story about the moment at which Siddhartha Gautama achieved enlightenment. Uh, and he was sitting under this Bodhi tree. And along came Mara, the embodiment of all of the desire and attractions of this world, and pulled out every trick to uh, distract Siddhartha from his, uh, this, this movement towards enlightenment. And the last thing he did <coughs> was bring out his daughters to dance. Um, uh, and as if that was the final straw that life could, could play. Uh, and I can totally relate to that uh, in the form of my wife who's here. This, this, this poem is called Sages. The sages call you petal of a flower in a rainstorm. They say your sand poured from a broad leaf when wind blows upstream, or a stuck drape flapping the yard while in the gutter maple pods cleave, or thoughts of braiding time, and sometimes the nails growing on saints stuffed into cathedral walls. But I remember shaving in the driver's side mirror by a pond in Normandy and an $8 motel room near Spokane in a heat wave. We read sages there, couchant. And whatever those wise ones said about us, we ate it with salt. Plus, that pale mole to the left of your navel. I'm not so naive as to tell myself the sages wouldn't have loved it painfully. <clears throat> so one section of this book uh, are poems that were written as monologues. They, they appear in quotation marks, as if somebody other than myself is speaking. And one of these is called Psychiatrist's Example. So it's as if you're in there with a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist is giving you an example of something. Uh, and the subject at hand is how difficult it is to come to any insight about yourself, how blindness to self is so deeply entrenched that any insight is really hard won. And that once you do win it, uh, while you've gained something, you've also experienced a terrible loss, the loss of all the illusions that must go now that this door has been opened. So a psychiatrist's example. We pay dearly for a glimpse in loss. After much consideration and talk, Narcissus drew back and said, that's me. Rose and walked into a mirrorless sea, wandered in a hall of mirrors, faced himself egregiously, shed tears and watched himself thin at the lip, asked for a reprieve, dislocated his hip, threw out his back, and after that, got told chemotherapy was his return ticket. That's even lieu of an early exit, infamy as an aspersion, beauty's apparition, even lieu of rotting in the weeping lake or lending his name to a jonquil or a rake. Narcissus understood his reflection. Okay, I'm going to just read one more uh, and um, this grew out of a trip that uh, I took to, to Las Vegas. Um, 
I'd been invited there by the library system to give a talk, and it just seemed like a great excuse to go to Las Vegas and see what it was all about. Um, I, had, I had been there once before, years before, uh, on assignment from Harper's Magazine to write about a suburb called Green Valley, which is neither green or a valley, a master plan community. This time I went back, and I went to the Strip and wandered around, uh, and um, <clears throat> it was so stimulating. And I had um, um, numerous reactions that were conflicting with one another. And I think, well, they did find their way into this poem, which is called, What Happens in Vegas? And the first line of this poem is, goes away. Viva Las Vegas. It's the Bombay boys and the bewilderment posse in a showdown at the Center for the Sacrament. Plus seven to one, the gunslinger from Evanston is really there in 20 minutes. At her homework in the hold, she's a paratrooper waiting for the call to jump, but needs time to close her books, too, and strap in with a secondary. Why not a simulated red light district with disdainful Amsterdammer whores reading Robe Grier and canisters? Wouldn't that give us more than we got? But post, post something or other, the ironies turned tragic. And now we have to pray for the gangster of love to come out from among the hypnotists and magicians, and for Carrot Top, diced at the buffet of qualms, and for the woman who said, I should go fuck myself when I asked her if she would shut up during O. Here, this goes out to the girl throwing up on the people mover. You're loved, your job is waiting for you, and you'll be back next year stronger for the experience. Not unlike that of the awakened one hanging from his rope bed in the sal trees when he realized that the way to die was on his right side with his hand supporting his head. There's golden nuggets all up and down Vegas and plenty of thoughtful and contemplative souls driven by melancholy into friendliness towards strangers. You mostly see them on their way to work, obstinately sad beneath the clean sun, smiling too and pressed to let you know in code, as if you and they were complicit fellow Gnostics, that they want you to have a nice day in Vegas, that they believe you can figure out how to arrange this, but that it's their job to indicate the possibility exists and to get you started on the road toward their hometown's encrypted, simpler satisfactions. That's sort of like Jesus the Hermaphrodite appearing live at the Palace of Nirvana for one week only between his seven, several Eastern European engagements. Though there's always the chance he'll return to Caesar's palace after the flash flood, but before the snow flies. Viva Las Vegas. We got ferried in, ferried out, and in between, shook. Depocketed and bank shot to a frazzled tee. They made fools of us in Vegas, fiddled and diddled us according to their paradigm, we were like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern at Luxor, the Bellagio. Somebody suggested that if I had to visit, it was best to ignore Vegas, eat good meals, take the sun, take offense, pretend I wasn't in Vegas while in Vegas, but then why go? I went, got fleeced, made hay, and panned for gold. I sold and got sold. They put me in the hole. I lost and won like everybody else. Thank you. I'm going to read a little from, uh, from, can you hear that? Everybody hears, okay. I'm going to read a little bit from my book, The Devil in the White City. Um, I don't usually read um, from my work. It's something I guess that nonfiction writers tend not to do, novelists and poets do it all the time. So this is sort of a novelty for me. Um, so The Devil in the White City, those of you who haven't read the book, it's about a serial killer and the World's Fair of 1893, the construction thereof. I'm going to read you a little passage that, that I hope will give you a sense of, uh, I'm the one who's sort of trying to bring this back into the research realm here. I, I, I hope this will give you a sense of the kinds of things I love to come across when I'm doing my research. If there's anything that I bring to this. There is no magic, as I was telling somebody um, via Twitter or, or Facebook or something or whatever today. Um, there's no magic to this. It's really about finding the right vivid details that, that 
light up, light up a story. And if I bring anything to this that's a little different or a little offbeat, I suppose it's a sense of things that other historians, other writers might, might leave out, as you perhaps you'll get a sense here. Anyway, this is a little passage that begins when the World's Fair of 1893 is, um, has just uh, really started to look like it might actually be a success. Um, this thing that was built in a year and a half uh, in, in circumstances that really might be described as miraculous. Visitors wore their best clothes as if going to church and were surprisingly, I heard that phone. <laughs> Visitors wore their best clothes as if going to church and were surprisingly well behaved. In the six months of the fair, the Colombian Guard made only 2,929 arrests, about 16 per day, typically for disorderly conduct, petty theft, and pickpocketing. With pickpockets most, fav with pickpockets most favoring the fair's always crowded aquarium, the Guard identified 135 ex-convicts and removed them from the grounds. It investigated the discovery on the grounds of three fetuses, a Pinkerton detective, quote, assaulting visitors, unquote, at the Tiffany Pavilion, and, quote, a Zulu acting improperly, end quote. <laughs> this, by the way, was from a police report done at the close of the fair that had just was a treasure trove of details. With so many people packed among steam engines, giant rotating wheels, horse-drawn fire trucks, and rocketing bobsleds, the fair's ambulances, superintended by a doctor named Gentles. I'm going to stop there. No, I'm not going to stop for the, for, the, for the day, but I'm just going to make a little note there that if, if I spend an entire day in an archive and all I find out is that the guy who founded this innovative ambulance service at the World's Fair of 1893 was named Dr. Gentles, I go, I go home happy, which... <laughs> By a doctor named Gentles, we're constantly delivering bruised, bloody, and overheated visitors to the exposition hospital. Over the life of the fair, the hospital treated 11,602 patients, 64 a day, for injuries and ailments that suggest that the mundane sufferings of people who have not changed very much over the, have not changed very much over the ages. Uh, mind you, this is sort of a test for the audience as well. The list included 820 cases of diarrhea, 154 constipation, 21 hemorrhoids. Now, personally, I think that's low. <laughs> now, now, shredded wheat was introduced at the World's Fair of 1893, so. But, and it was a much more active time, but still, I think that's low. 434 cases of indigestion, 365 foreign bodies in the eyes, 364 cases of severe headaches, 594 episodes of fainting, syncope, and exhaustion. And my one most favorite fact in the entire book, one case of extreme flatulence. <laughs> now, history is a wonderful thing, but sometimes there are just mysteries about things that you discover as you do your research that you just wish you just wish history weren't quite so silent on the subject, one of which is in that case. Here's this innovative ambulance service. The guy gets hauled off for extreme flatulence. And the question that has haunted me ever since, who rode with the guy? <laughs> and we know it's a guy, don't we, ladies? Don't we? I mean, we know it's a guy. So anyway, fast forward to the next, the next passage. So the big deal thing at the World's Fair, one of the, one of the amazing things was this, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the invention that was meant to compete with the Eiffel Tower of the French Fair held some years before, and that was the Ferris wheel, a gigantic Ferris wheel, a monster Ferris wheel. The Ferris wheel quickly became the most popular attraction of the exposition. There were still questions about the wheel's safety, and unfounded stories circulated about suicides and accidents including one that alleged that a frightened pug, that is the dog, a frightened pug had leapt to its death from one of the car's windows. Not true, the Ferris company said. The story was the concoction of a reporter, quote, short on news and long on invention, end quote. Now, this is another strange thing that I, I had no idea that Fox News was around back then, you know? I mean, who knew? If not for the wheels, windows, and iron grates, however, its record might have been different. On one ride, a latent terror of heights suddenly overwhelmed an otherwise peaceful man named Werrett. He was fine until the car began to move. As it rose, he began to feel ill and nearly fainted. There was no way to signal the engineer below to stop the wheel. Werrett staggered in panic from one end of the car to the other, driving passengers before him, quote, like scared sheep, end quote, according to one account. 
He began throwing himself at the walls of the car with such power that he managed to bend some of the protective iron. The conductor and several male passengers tried to subdue him, but he shook them off and raced for the door. In accord with the wheel's operating procedures, the conductor had locked the door at the start of the ride, where it shook it and broke its glass, but could not get it open. As the car entered its descent, where it became calmer and laughed and sobbed with relief, until he realized the wheel was not going to stop. It always made two full revolutions. Where it again went wild, and again the conductor and his allies subdued him, but they were growing tired. They feared what might happen if where it escaped them. Structurally, the car was sound, but its walls, windows, and doors had been designed merely to discourage attempts at self-destruction, not to resist a human pile driver. Already, Huard had broken glass and bent iron. A woman stepped up and unfastened her skirt. To the astonishment of all aboard, she slipped the skirt off and threw it over Huard's head, then held it in place while murmuring gentle assurances. The effect was immediate. Huard became as quiet as an ostrich. A woman disrobing in public, a man with a skirt over his head. The marvels of the fair seemed endless. <laughs> and that's where I'm going to stop. Thank you. Thank you for sitting there. Thank you both so much. Um, that was wonderful. Uh, so yeah, we're going to talk a bit about the role of research. Um, both men have worked, I mean, obviously they've written journalism uh, and long-form journalism, and then also book-length uh, narrative, which is, in the case of Mr. Goodison, a lot of research that goes into the novels, uh, and yours are huge amounts of research for nonfiction. Um, but I have a sort of a process question uh, about, because in teaching, you often find people who are using research as a way of avoiding the page. It's a sort of procrastination tool, a very elaborate procrastination tool, not unlike sort of excessive copy editing. And um, I wondered if you guys, if you could, because you're both very prolific as well, if there is a, a relationship, how you manage the sort of absorption of information and the output of text. If you have a system for not getting, how do you put it, mired in, <laughs> in research or lost in the, the fun of research? Well, I've always been curious about that with, with fiction. Is like, right. at, at, I, you know, I mean, I, I have no knowledge of how, a, how a, a writer of historical nonfiction actually goes about writing something like that. And your work is not what I would classify as historical nonfiction, although Snowfalling of Theaters had a lot of elements of yeah. you know, detailed history. But, but I've often wondered, you know, how, how does one go about that? Do you write the story first and then dress it up? You know? And if you don't, if you have to do a lot of advanced information, at what point does the research start to inhibit your characters, or That's does it? And does, and does it become a crutch where you have to describe the, you know, the Capitol building in, you know, in, in Washington before the, the tall guy with the hat right. gets off? You know, trying to tell a story in like this forest of facts. Right. Right. Yeah, right. the presence of research in a novel can be so conspicuous that it overwhelms everything else. And it suggests that the author had nothing else to rely on, no, nothing in, in terms of the imagination. And you know, really, anybody can go out if they have the energy and gather enough uh, research to sort of have the substance for a book. Books that read like that feel sort of like these, these shells lacking. Uh, right. But, but your question about uh, procrastination, Process. research as procrastination, which you know, we all know, I know about, uh, right. for sure. Um, I've had to divide it up into two phases. So there's a preliminary phase of research that just provides a foundation and sort of uh, through, via which you enter a world right. in a particular place and time. And it just grounds you in the feel, the texture. And then you're underway, even though you know you don't know as much as you need to know. But now, as you go along, uh, at, at, at particular writing moments, you, you realize that you need to bring in some more research if you're going to be effective and make progress. So I handle that by dividing it into these two categories, the preliminary and then the embedded kind of research. So you never get sort of stuck in the research, the sort of? As a fiction writer, I haven't, no. You never, yeah, you always sort of. No, that hasn't, that hasn't been a problem. Actually, uh, I find it to be a bigger problem with nonfiction. 
Interesting. I yeah. feel much more uh, free to procrastinate. Right. <laughs> well, how about well, I'm you? an expert at procrastination, and all I do is nonfiction research. So you know, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, it's a, it's such it's such a different sort of a thing. I mean, it, it, I'm not trying to come up with a, a, a narrative and then and then decorate it with a period dress or events right. that surround it. I, I. I go with what I've got. I choose the story very, very carefully in advance, precisely because I want something that's going to have a powerful, a powerful novel-like narrative. It's right. not going to be a novel, but it's going to have a novel-like narrative. Right. There aren't that many stories that actually can 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 work that way. Right. So for me, it's more of a more of a more of a process where I have to, I know what the story is, and I have to find ways to make that story as vivid and interesting, and if necessary, funny in places as I possibly can, by, by finding, by finding the, 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 the little details that will light the imagination of people's minds, you know, and then put those along the path of the narrative, the danger is that you have so much stuff. I mean, the stuff that I leave on the cutting room floor is ridiculous. That's why I have my, my footnote section, which is getting bigger and bigger with each book, if those of you who read my books have noticed. And, and, uh, and, and the only resolution to that is my wife, the secret weapon. <laughs> my wife is the secret weapon. She is a natural reader and editor. Mm. And at the end of the whole process, she will read my, my whole book. It's very, this took us a while to come up with this. It's a very non-confrontational process now. It wasn't always that way. <laughs> the way and, the, and the reason is we've worked out various sort of, sort of fail-safe things. Like uh, she's not allowed to read the book when I'm in the same house. She reads it when she goes off to a medical conference. So if, if I'm on a research trip, she, she reads it. Because I cannot afford to see her sitting there on the couch falling asleep with the, you know, the, the text strewing across the carpet, you know? <laughs> and so, and then, and when she gives it back to me, she's not allowed to say anything about what she thought of it. She's not allowed to say, oh God, I love this, because I'll know she's lying, you know what I mean? And she's not allowed to say, uh, you know, she's not allowed, not allowed to say anything. All she's allowed to do is give this back to me with things in the margin saying whether they're good or bad, up arrows, down arrows, smiley faces, crying faces. And then the, my least favorite thing is the long trailing lines of Z's, you know, which means that she's found. Or, or a, 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 actually, even more disturbing are long passages where there, there's nothing, no remark whatsoever. And then I think to myself, oh my God, my own wife, she skipped. You know, she skipped but the reason that's so valuable is she helps me pick out the things that, that right. need to go. Have you ever had a book where you were proceeding and during the research, during your conception, you thought, this is going to be great, but in fact, it turns out that it doesn't conform to sort of good storytelling. It may be an interesting story in a way, but the pacing is terrible or something, and there's too much time passes between the interesting events or something, and you don't have, like most like filmmakers do, the nonfiction films that are full of liberties. Right, so right. Do you, have you ever had to kill one after looking at it closely? I, I've only had to kill, well, I've had to kill many in the proposal phase, which is sort of like a miniature book. Right. Yeah, where I realized that that the story there, I'm there, I'm composing the narrative arc mm -hmm. and seeing if it exists and seeing, so sort of speculating as to what kind of material will be available and what do I actually know does exist. Mm -hmm. So I I don't knock wood get into a project that at some point might surprise me and fail. Now, having said that, maybe the current one that I'm working on is exactly that one. I don't know. But, but so far, no. So far, no. And one thing that, that the power of, uh, you know, in terms of pure technical tactics, when you are doing nonfiction and you run out of facts for a particular period, text break, white space, move right. on to the next passage. It's brilliant. <laughs> That's helpful. <laughs> um, uh, and with both of you, you've written, I mean, you've written a little bit of historical fiction, you've written a lot of historical nonfiction, but do you, when you're looking at them, do you feel, I guess, a need or not, I guess it might be just a no, yes or no question in a way, but to find a way to make the past in conversation with the present, or is that important to you or not? Like, is it just an interesting story, or is it you kind of want it to have resonances that work like with Snowfalling on Seas, did you have that where it was sort of like, I want this to be kind of a commentary of what's going on in the time in a way or not? I think there are a lot of writers who see it as their role 
to address the moment. Right. I mean, they may not be writing about this particular moment. It might not be right. a story that's set in America today. Right. But whatever they're doing, they're trying to address the moment. And then, presumably in the future, if the book endures, it becomes a kind of document that right. yields insight into where we were culturally or socially now, here and right. now. And for many people, that's essential to what they do. But then there are writers who say to themselves, for something to truly endure, it's got to have the kind of timeless appeal. Right. And it doesn't really matter if it comments on now, because the things that matter to people now are the things that have always mattered to people and always will. Mm -hmm. And so that's another sort of category. And, and I, I, you know, we're, I've tried it both ways. Yeah. In my most recent novel, Ed King, is very much of right. the moment. Yeah. I think anybody who read it you know, down the road would say, now I know something more about that place and time. Absolutely. Uh, Snow Falling on Cedars, yes, you'd learn about a place and time. But in, a, in, in another way, it's, it's in that second category of, right. endure, I hope, sort of right. enduring set yeah. of themes and mm. right. considerations. Yeah. I'll tell you what I've had to wrestle with along those lines. When I, when I made the transition from newspaper work, mm -hmm. <laughs> so, it was so jarring to hear refer to me as a newspaper man. <laughs> it's old school. Uh, but anyway, so, so, so uh, when I made the transition from newspapers, in particular when I, when I left the Wall Street Journal where I just did feature stories and just loved it, to, to doing my, my first book that was sort of broke out, which was Isaac Storm, I, the thing I had to wrestle with time and again was this thing that was beaten into our heads during the when I was working for the Wall Street Journal, and this is, cuts to the idea of, you know, is it something that has to resonate with the president, you know? Right. And at the Wall Street Journal, we always had to have something that was referred to as a significance graph. You know, it always had to be within the first three paragraphs of your article. The third paragraph had to be, essentially, you should read this article because, you know, this is what you say to yourself. This is, this is how you test your idea. You should read this article because you will learn about this. Right. And when I was trying to come up with uh, how, to, how to get this, this proposal, um, for Isaac Storm to my agent, who's a notorious proposal Nazi, um, <laughs> I, as in the soup Nazi kind of thing, not the other kind of Nazi. So, so um, uh, it had, was overcoming the significance graph because right. I wanted to do Isaac Storm because it was a great story. It's not because it meant anything in particular mm -hmm. to the time. And it was so hard for me to get past that point. Now I'm completely liberated. I just choose things that I think are a fantastic <clears throat> story. And if anybody finds a resonance in them today, Mm -hmm. Good for them, yeah. you know. Or if there happens to be a casual thing occurring, for example, in *Devil in the White City*, I loved the fact that there was this corporate suck-up who kept trying to go around Daniel Burnham, and because that's a that's a that's a that's a universal for all of us today. There's always some dweeb, you know, who's trying to get ahead by stepping on our faces, you know. Mm -hmm. So if I find those, I, I, I'll I'll use it. Yeah. You've both done sort of magazine, newspaper writing. We were talking about this, we met a couple weeks ago to talk. And, uh, and then you've also written books. Uh, and uh, I wonder a little bit about sort of like, it seems you both have sort of moved away from the shorter forms, except for now David's going back to poems, which are quite short, um, uh, but towards books. I mean, working on book length things. And I wondered in part, first of all, sort of uh, if you miss something about the magazine, and newspaper writing. And then we also talked a bit about the fact-checking rigmarole, the intensity of fact-checking, and why is it that if you're writing for mm -hmm. Atlantic or something, they have a fact-checker on the phone with you for two hours. But when you turn in a book that's going to be nonfiction in front of you know millions of people, nobody fact-checks it. That's right. Um, well, they, that's right. they might fact-check it if there are legal considerations. Right, exactly. But, um, no, the magazine work, or you know, we've got this sort of discrete subject topic you're supposed right. to be focusing on master plan communities as I mentioned earlier or I wrote a piece for Harper's on the Mall of America I wrote one on the Washington State app it's, it's a discrete entity that you are investigating and it has sort of borders it right. doesn't seem to just sort of fade into everything else whereas when you're working on a book uh, you don't have that sense of something discrete you've got a, you've got a world that you're trying to engage and to me this is really the point about research to, to talk about research is to suggest that there's something called research, that there's something separate yeah. from life, that there's this abstract thing that you do, you stop, you stop everything else about your life and then you do research and then you go back to living. But no, I think when you're working on a book, 
your research, be, in some regard, becomes is embedded in your existence. You're just right. alive with curiosity about something, mm -hmm. and you, you start jumping from one thing to the next and reading your way off into tan tangents, and you know perfectly well that they pro probably has nothing to do with what you're going to write, but what difference does it make? Because it's not research anymore, it's living. Right, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. That's, true. That's true. Do you miss it at all, the sort of the shorter? No. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, you know, sometimes I'm tempted to go back and I, I mean, what, what's short and what's long? I mean, you do a piece for the Atlantic Monthly, it sure. can be quite long, or for the New Yorker, you know. Yeah. But, but, you know, I, I guess another way of saying it is, you know, do I miss sort of daily, not daily, but the, you know, reporting and so forth? Not at all. I mean, part of the reason I, I do books that are based in the in the deep past, past a certain threshold, is because I just got to the point where I hated cold calling people to interview them. Right, I just, I, dead people don't bug you. you they know, don't, they just, yeah. they, they don't come back and... No angry letters. No angry letters. Never? No you never letters. had an angry letter? Not from Not a dead from person. Like a, no, I mean, but from... <laughs> Abe Lincoln wrote me once, that was a problem. I dead people who write letters. No, uh, but uh, from like the, the child of... No, well, I mean, I, I always try to contact family members and, yeah, and, and that's, I, I mean, it, it, is often, it, it is often not terribly useful the distortions of second and third generation memory are really sure. powerful and really, really difficult to deal with. Yeah. I, that's why I always err in the favor of contemporary memoirs, letters, chronicles that were done at the time. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, to switch gears a little bit, you both live here in our fine Pacific Northwest, very sunny apparently. Um, region. Uh, and I know, da David, you're very much, you're, a lot of your writings, the poems, the fiction, were really embedded in this place, uh, and Eric far less so. But um, I wonder if you feel a sense of connection to the place and if it still informs your work, even if it's not <laughs> set here, uh, and why you like living in Seattle, and sort of pass it around between the two Well, uh, again, uh, because my mind is sort of focused on this research research question. Right. You know, there's sort of there's two levels. To some degree, you know, I'm born here. I've lived here my whole life, and I I know the place. And so, in my in my fourth novel, the other, which right. I, I'm really not doing any research. I'm just I'm just exploiting what I naturally know right. organically from living in a place. But yeah. when I went to write Ed King, which is about tech moguls, right, uh, and a world I haven't lived in, I may, I may be from here, but I don't know anything about it. Right. Uh, <clears throat> Well, you know, there's this, the question you're asking, though, about living in this place and the degree to which it in, informs your writing. I mean, it has to. Right. It absolutely has. I mean, really, no matter where, where you are, that's going to be the case. But people often make a case for the Northwest in particular. And, you know, the generic thing to pull out right. is to say that the weather lends itself that's the to same writing. Yeah, like you saw that piece in the New York and Times. That, but I also, for, in my case, I know that there's a mood that gets established by, sure. by the light and my own interest in nature, right. and that, uh, that, that that brings a kind of temperament and sensibility to my work that I don't think it would be there if I lived somewhere else. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Interesting. Yeah. Do you find, Eric, that you write more here than you would in a sunny climate or something? Write more? No. <laughs> no. no. Well, well, let me just first the, the idea of like subjects that you pick and so forth. I, I don't. In, fa in fact, I, I, I've, I, I've tended to avoid writing about the places where I actually live. Because mm -hmm. there's always a danger that you're going to come to it with, a, with, a, with some kind of pre-existing concept of, of what a place is like and what kind of information you're going to get and so forth. And I think it's very valuable, for me at least, to come in, parachute into an archive not knowing anything and just sort of come to, my, come to terms with, with the past. I also mm -hmm. think that, I also, again, as Carter said to my sort of journalistic past, is that I think it's always bad policy to write about a place where you live. Yeah. <laughs> if you're writing nonfiction, you can get killed. Yeah, you're going to make a lot of enemies. Well, no, no matter may, I, what may I just say that anybody, who want, anybody here who's not from Seattle um, and wants to get a really, I think, a really good sense of what Seattle's all about should read a book called Where'd You Go, Bernadette by Maria Semple. Yeah. Hilarious and so dead on. So dead on. <laughs> scathing. 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 Well, but scathing in a charming way. Charming, I think. Too, I think yeah, I know. People, some people would get upset. Maybe. I, um, would, I would say this also in, in, in following up on what David was saying, is that, yes, there is, if there is one thing to be said for a Seattle winter, which can be very, very gloomy. It's not cold, but it's 
dark. Right. It's dark. And if you don't have that vitamin D, you know, it's your table side, you're, you're at it. It's, uh, but there is something about the darkness and the rain and the sort of rhythms of that that is very conducing, conducive to, to just putting in some really good time writing. Yeah. I have just a question just for David, because you now have this book of poems out. Mm -hmm. I started reading these poems. I saw one, we were in a magazine together some years ago, and I was, I loved the poem, and I was like, I did not know that this guy wrote poems. And I wonder about how and why you found yourself writing poems. Did you find yourself writing poems, or did you? Yeah, sort of I did. I mean, I mentioned earlier that I was surprised when right. poems just emerged. Right. In fact, because I had so adamantly told myself for so many years that they could not emerge. Right. And yeah. it wasn't part of my identity. I mean, yeah. I had sort of almost consciously, intentionally pushed away the identity of poet. It has nothing mm -hmm. to do with me. I love poetry, and I, but I can't do it, you know, or I shouldn't do it or something. So yeah, yeah. I was very, I was very um, surprised when poems started happening. And I remember distinctly I had been participating in a writer's conference in mm -hmm. Bend, Oregon, and I had listened to a number of poets read. And then I was driving, you know, in that sort of dark space, and at, I went at over. Night. At night, right? Yes, well, er, very early in the morning. And yeah. just at dawn, I crossed, I, I came down, and, I crossed Satis, but I came down the Yakima Valley, and I just pulled over and started to write a poem, which really, really surprised me. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's a cliche for a writer to say, you know, I don't, it chose me, uh, I'm not responsible for it, it comes through me, that sort of thing, about stories or poems or so on. But poetry is, for me, a completely different space from sure. fiction. And it, it emerges in a different, many of my poems have happened first thing in the morning. Yeah. Well, it's still dark, and I mean that. Did you find it intimidating or sort of, I would be scared. It's intimidating, but I can always say to myself, you know, I'm a beginner, I don't expect much sure. of myself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I wanted to ask, it's sort of like, it maybe seems sort of like a crass question, but this is a writer's conference after all. Um, <laughs> But you guys have both sold tons of books. Your books have been read by quite a few people, um, to put it mildly. And I wonder if you have, if that experience of finding such a wide audience has affected your creative process and the way you think about, say, a novel or a, a work of nonfiction, that if you, when you're on the page, you're sort of aware of a kind of readership or a kind of, I wonder if just the size of the audience has an effect on your creative process in some way, um, if it's a good motivator or uh, if it messes with you when you're and writing. It's a mixed bag. I yeah. mean, if you've sold a lot of copies of a book and you've had some degree um, of success, then you, you, you're, there's some degree of sort of pressure that goes with that that you wouldn't otherwise have. But on the other hand, you feel liberated in the right. sense that um, you do have an audience and you, know, you can uh, continue to write and make a living doing it, sure. uh, which is very, it's you know, a stroke of great fortune and very, right. very liberating. It gives you time and gives you space and allows you to do really sort of what you want to do. Mm -hmm. um, write the book that you want to write. Right. Um, you can gradually lose your audience by not meeting expectations book after book. Right. So, you know, they're, they're, there's good and bad in it. Yeah. Yeah. Do yeah. you find, Eric, that you think I, about I it? I think, yeah. well, yeah, I, I think, that, I think there, there does come to be a lot of pressure, but I think that at the start of the next project, the challenge is to put that out of your mind to the extent that you can and just say, okay, look, you know, I know there's a certain expectation of, of something, but I want to write this story because, you know, like in the case of the project I'm working on now, which I won't tell you what it is, but, you know, it's really an exploration of, it's, it's, a, it's a, a story where what I'm really trying to do is to, is to see to what extent a real life event can generate really sort of Tom Clancy-esque suspense. Right. I'm, trying, I'm trying to sort of do this, this thing. And that's why and I'm, I'm going after this particular story. Whether anybody's going to care or not, right. I sure hope they do. But, but you right. know, um, you got to put that aside and say, I'm doing this because I love this story. And I love the potential for you know, making somebody go from this point to this point 
you know, in one night. Interesting, yeah. So. You're looking in a way for something entertaining within that. You've both also uh, worked with screenwriters, I suppose, or have had your works optioned for film. Screenplays have been written. You had a film made, David, um, of your first novel. And I wonder if you absorb some of the, I know some of those, like you can sit with a screenwriter and they have these plot points and it can be kind of maddening when you see how clear their <coughs> conception of plot structure is uh, compared to a person who works in a book, which is so enormous in a way. Um, did you sort of borrow something? Did you get something out of that other than, or not really? I didn't. I mean, I really felt that this was a completely separate world, a completely separate set of concerns and considerations. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the screenwriter has one set of considerations, the director has another. And right. when the director starts to you know, bring to bear his or her sensibility on the screenplay, well, then it's assuming camera shots right. and, 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 and assuming how much the story is going to be told visually. Right. And it's just an entirely separate set of dimensions from, what, mm. from the world that, that I work in. So I didn't feel like I could really carry anything from that world into, into the world that I work in. But I did find it interesting. And I enjoyed attempting to think in visual terms about yeah. what sort of narrative work could be done by the camera. And, and other considerations, and not just by dialogue, right. is something that you know you don't think about. Yeah, that makes sense. In fiction writing, where prose has to carry all of it. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 Have you had experiences with it? Or well, I, I've I've had uh, I've had a lot of a lot of options. No films made yet. But there's yeah. always hope, you know. Um, but um, I, I have I I think we kind of share maybe the same philosophy. My philosophy about Hollywood is that. Um, it's, it's essentially Tom Wolfe's philosophy, and I'm misquoting here, but essentially it is you, you, uh, you take your book to the fence, take the bag of money, and run. Because Hollywood will break your heart. I mean, <laughs> I mean you know, there's, 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 right. there's, just, there's just so many people who try to get involved, and I'm a loner. I mean, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta have absolute control. Right. I, can't, I can't have five people coming in and saying, oh, we really love your work, but you know, we're gonna rewrite everything and right. all that stuff. But yeah. one thing I would say about, I, I, you know, I can't speak to it in terms of my own books because no film has been made, but although there, you know, there's still someone too, too under option, but, um, but when I have read a book and then seen the film, what I find so fascinating is this, precisely this doing in scenes what we do through narrative, where we do have scenes, narrative scenes, but the whole thing is carried visually in a film. And I, right. I always feel, I don't know about anybody else, but when I fly, I don't, I don't do the movie thing, I don't get the digi thing on Alaska and stuff, but I always look at my neighbor, you know, I'm always watching that film. And so, and so I don't have the sound in my ears, and I can tell when a movie's a good movie because I get it, right. just yeah. by the unfolding of the action. Yeah. One recent movie that I saw on a plane where I didn't get anything was The Lone Ranger. It's like, it's like if you don't have the sound, it's like, what the hell is this about, you know? So, but anyway, so, so but, but I, think it, I think it really helps me sometimes to think about, you know, okay, I can, I can do this passage in a, in a way that, that is more visual than I currently have on the page. By, like in the case of Devil in the White City, there was a trove of, incredible trove of photographs done. It was a city survey, photographic city survey done in the period before, before or just after the fair, where they actually took pictures of every street and every corner in the city of Chicago and labeled it and told you what view you had of that, you know, State Street from the corner of such and such and such and such, mm -hmm. which is absolutely invaluable because if you know something happened there at that corner, you can suddenly describe it in detail yeah. and become very visual. You know, so. um, I'm going to open it up to questions from the audience. If you guys have questions, um, we there's probably not a microphone circulating, so you'll have to use your bullhorn. Um, yes, in the front. He, the question is how uh, Eric Larson chooses the subjects oh. that he's going to write about. Boy, that's another session entirely. I mean, it's, you know, it is, I, I wish I had a formula. 
I don't have, you know, unlike, unlike the late David Halberstam, who, who claimed to have a list of, you know, know what his next five books were going to be, when I'm finished with a book, I don't, I don't know. Um, all the other ideas that were contenders for the previous book sort of wither and disappear, and, and they never come back. And so I always start with a blank slate, and the process, it's a very long process for me. It mm -hmm. takes, drives my agent and my editor crazy. It takes about a year between wow. the time I finish and the time I get the proposal done for the, wow. next, for the next book, in the course of which I will go through a number of ideas, reaching various phases in the proposal process until yeah. something just feels like, you know, you, you, I get this sort of feeling of, oh, I almost start to vibrate when I start to find things that just, wow, I didn't know that. That's what I often go by. That's a real powerful thing for me. I didn't know. I, Devil West, I didn't know anything about the World's Fair of 1893. I didn't know anything about Holmes. Right. You know, I mean, all these, all these strange things that came up in the course of that. So, so that's a real powerful thing for me. And then is there, the test, the true test is, is there a built-in, natural, real-life, non-fiction narrative within the story? Is there a narrative arc? You know, what you fiction guys always talk about. <laughs> and in real life, there are narrative arcs. Um, the question is, is there enough material to make that arc come alive? And that's the next standard. So it's a long, really involved process. And you don't want to be around me when I'm in the midst of it. So. <laughs> yeah, you have a question right there? How important is it for you to be in the physical place where a book is taking place, either in the research process or the writing process? Like, if you spend time in Chicago, how much time do you spend in Chicago so she's, in the process? So she, you're asking me? Yeah. Yeah, so she's asking me um, where in the physical, is it, how necessary is it for me to be in the physical space for me to, to, write, to write a book? Do I have to actually go there and experience whatever and so forth? Absolutely. You have to always go to the, the scene of the crime, as it right. were. I went to Chicago a lot. And, and I went in every season so that I could sort of experience the different moods of the city. You know, so most things, of course, are very different now. Um, but one unchanging element of the city of Chicago is Lake Michigan, and that was crucial. And that's, in a way, Lake Michigan is a, is a, is a character in The Devil in the White City. Mm -hmm. It's sort of constantly there in the background as this inanimate and yet really highly animated um, vehicle for conveying a sense of mood and so forth. So it's really, really crucial. For In the Garden of Beasts, I parachuted into Berlin on a you know, this really, really cold February day, mainly because I wanted to get the best hotel rates. You know, it's cold in Berlin, nobody goes, you know. Yeah. Horizontal snow is not good for tourism. And so, and so, one of the first things, I, I had a hotel overlooking the Tiergarten, and it's like, I, I never would have known this if I hadn't gone to Berlin. I wouldn't have, have had this perception. Looking out my window, the first thing that came to my mind was Corpus Christi, Texas. Why? Because Berlin, from that perspective, very, very flat. Very flat, just no, just I could see forever across the top of Berlin. Yeah. And, and, and then also across the top of the, the park and realized that just about everything took place within a 15 or 20 minute walk. Not just of where mm -hmm. I was, but of the central node of action in the book. Mm. And that was really important to know, yeah. you know just, just how close everything was. And that's, that's why it became In the Garden of, of, of Bees. Oh, interesting. The title. Yeah. Other questions? Yes, hello. I had a question for both of you about research um, and historical research. How do you find sources? And as well-known people, do you have some sort of uh, access that um, a beginning writer may not have? Well, because I'm, I live on, on Bainbridge Island and because uh, the, the fictional island in the book derives historically from events on Bainbridge, it was pretty easy just to go to people I knew and interview them or go to the Japanese American Community Association and uh, you know, receive the great gift of uh, 800 pages of transcribed oral interviews wow. and go to the historical society and the Historical Society Museum, uh, and the library, uh, and the archives of the Bainbridge Review. All these sources were at my disposal because I live in a small place where people know each other. 
Uh, and um, so in that particular book, you know, it made it, it made it really easy. But your question makes me think about something else, which I'm actually doing right now. And I've, I've never done this before, but I do feel like uh, you can start playing the card of yourself. Um, and so, um, for example, lately, I would, there are two people who are imprisoned in the state of Washington correction system who I would like to interview. And I think to myself, do I just go through the process of filling out the application and seeing if I get approved, or do I tell them my, give them my resume and say who I am, and if I say who I am, is that going to help or hurt? You know, so now I'm in a different position, five books down the road, with a different set of considerations. Yeah. Mm. Have you found the answer to that question? Um, well, sometimes it helps. Sometimes the it fact helps. that people have already read your books and right. via your books they've come to maybe trust you. That makes sense. You know, yeah. for example, are you going to be writing a lurid, sensational book that glorifies right. sordid crime, or are you going to be doing something else? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the superintendent of the prison does not, would not want to assist me right, in that right, right. effort. Yeah. So. Yeah. Have you found the, uh, this? Well, you know, I find, well, well my MO, I, I try to keep a very low profile. And I would prefer that nobody knows anything about me or, right. that, or that I'm working in an archive or anything, because it just sort of distorts the whole process. Mm -hmm. However, it does occasionally come in very handy, especially when an archive gets kind of porky about letting you see certain things that are kind of technically off limits, as in the case for this, this current project, a whole collection of morgue photographs that nobody was allowed to see. And I was able to see them, I know, because they knew my work. And we were able to cut a deal where I could look at these, but I was not allowed to photograph okay. the things. So I got, I got a certain, I guess you could call it a Benny, kind of. Mm -hmm. but, but, but mostly, I really try to keep as low a profile as possible. I don't want people helping me. Right. And you I don't mean, unless, unless they're helping about what you're doing. Right. Unless they're helping for the right reason, just to help me, like they would help right. anybody else. That's, that's yeah. what I like. That's that what sense. I like. Yes, back there. Uh, this is for Mr. Larson. Uh, would you all just stop calling me Mr. Larson? Just say, I started just it. Say I'm sorry. Eric. I was being a little. Yeah, Thank you. <laughs> and anybody who calls me sir is a dead man or woman. Uh, <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Well, uh, first, I just wanted to say that uh, Devil in the White City was one of the most pivotal books in my development as a reader and as a writer. So thank you. So that can mean a number of things. <laughs> uh, it influential and inspiring. Okay. And I just wanted to know, I know you said that you wouldn't get into the movie field. Right. If you had complete control over a screenplay, would you write one for one of your books? Good question. So he's asking, did everybody hear that question? He's asking essentially if I had complete control, would I write, uh, and, I, and I felt like doing it, would I write a screenplay for, for, for one of my books? And you know, from time to time, I have, I have thought, yeah, it'd be kind of interesting. But, but most of the time, I just, something rises in me. It just makes me want to just vomit. It's, the, it's, <laughs> it's because, and I, David, I think, touched on it kind of, kind of earlier. It is such a different realm yeah. with such a different skill set, a different way of thinking about things. And you know, so there's that. But the second part of it is, I've already done that book. Yeah. You know, I don't want to do it again. I want to move on. You know, one of the things that uh, publishing, that, that movie contracts often, often try to now uh, stick you with when you have a nonfiction book is, is, is there is a clause that you are, you are to contribute, you are to give them a, an annotated manuscript, meaning you know, all the sources for everything in, in the thing. Mm. So I have the footnotes in the back of the book, but they want something else. They want you to do it over. You know, they want it, you done, it done their way, annotated their style and all this stuff. And that almost killed one of these option deals. I mean, I was just like, I don't want to do this again. I've done this book. But then they're just going to go make it all up. They don't, that's strange. Well, no, because they have the book and they have the footnotes. And yeah, I know, but yeah. Yes, and they're going to make it up anyway. I'm just saying, yeah. Yeah, hi. Um, yeah, this is for
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for the benefit of the people in the back who may not have quite heard that, the question is about, I suppose, craft and how you go about writing fiction. And questions. Um, I mean, there just are two ways to view the question. One is sort of on a day-to-day practical, you know, how do you sort of go about structuring your time? That's one question. Then there's sort of a larger question. I'll give a brief answer yeah. to both parts of it. Uh, you know, the last 20-some years I've been working on novels, and I've, you know, people ask me, you know, you must, must take a lot of discipline. Well, no, because I really am alive to the, to, to the pleasure, the sheer pleasure of the yeah. act. I want to get up in the morning and go to work. I love immersing myself in the world of the novel. I love the challenges of putting it together. I like synthesizing all these considerations that you bring to bear on a single line. You know, it's, it's pleasurable. It's my work, and I enjoy it. And so I don't have a problem with sort of wanting, wanting to do it at all. Um, and so uh, on a day-to-day basis, you know, I'll get up and I'll start, uh, read my way back into the moment, go back 20 pages and sort of work my way forward. And while doing that, I end up doing a lot of revising. And then it's middle of the day, and maybe I add a page or two. Mm. And then I leave it sit till the next day when I can see it more clearly and revise my way back into the moment and move ahead a couple yeah. of pages. You know, that's kind of the process. But larger, you know, macro scale, I guess, I would say <laughs> process-wise, and it's something that Eric alluded to uh, earlier, which is you really do have to feel this almost trembling with enthusiasm, this right. sense of real exhilaration and energy. Particularly for me with a novel, it's going to take years. You're going exactly. to live with it. Yeah. If you're not feeling really, really excited about it, you're not, you're not going to finish. So I try to ride uh, authentic energy. And if it's not there, then I know I shouldn't try to write that book. Have yeah. you uh, yeah. had the experience of you feel it and you get 100 pages in the book, and then you're sort of like, that, whoa. That's a common experience, and I you have this. to have it. But then Many you're like, times I hate this thing, I'm on. just going to give up. Particularly, I think, you know, in the first early part of your writing career, you definitely are going to do that more than once. You, you pretty much have to and learn from it. But I think as right. time goes by, you, you, you get more careful. Yeah. yeah and you don't sense. commit. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. We have yeah. time for a short question. One last short question. Before uh, we all go, there's going to be books for sale in the lobby area. And then there'll be a signing uh, area that's not <coughs> exactly there. It's right over here. Uh, one more question, a short question from here. Here, how you are. Yeah. I have a question for Eric. Yeah. Does research into writing sounds like it might be an alternating process? You're writing and researching and go back to writing and more researching. Can you clarify that? Yeah, so she's asking yeah. about the research. Is it, is it sort of a, a process where I research and then I write, then I research and then I write? What, what I try for, and I never succeed, is getting all the research done ahead of time, mm. reaching, reaching critical mass. But what invariably happens is the, the, I, I, I'm getting tons of stuff, and I reach a point where, it, it, this is going to sound strange, but you know, the, the, the story just has to come out. Yeah. You know, it just has to start, I just have to start writing. And then the day, I, I go into page a day mode, where I write one page early in the morning, and then the rest of the day is research. And gradually, at one page a day, suddenly, next thing you know, as I'm nearing the end of the process, because yeah. of what I like to refer to as the acceleration effect, yeah. I'm doing 10 pages a day. Yeah. But always researching, because there's always a little fact that you've got to find. That makes sense. Thank you so much, everyone. We'll be through there. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.